Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Less than a month after the mass shooting at a Buffalo supermarket, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed 10 gun control bills into law this week, including one that raises the age to buy a semi-automatic rifle from age 18 to 21. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul's hometown of Buffalo is grieving in the aftermath of a racially motivated shooting at the Topps Market that killed 10 people. I'm speaking to you today as the governor of a state in mourning and the citizen of a nation in crisis. The bills are aimed at closing some loopholes that allowed the alleged 18-year-old gunman to purchase a semi-automatic rifle, a bulletproof vest, and evade the state's red flag laws. Under the measures, law enforcement will now be required to ask a judge for an order to seize the guns of anyone they think might be a threat to themselves or others. The alleged shooter threatened to commit a murder-suicide at his high school in 2021, but the red flag law was never used. Hochul says the purchase of body armor will be banned, except for law enforcement and people in professions that could be in danger. And no one under 21 will be allowed to buy semi-automatic rifles in New York. So no 18-year-old can walk in on their birthday and walk out with an AR-15. Those days are over. Those days are over. You hear that? Those days are over. Other bills signed into law require gun manufacturers to allow for the micro-stamping of bullets to better trace weapons used in commission of crimes. Another closes a loophole that allowed the category of any other weapon, which Hochul says are essentially guns but are deliberately designed to evade gun control laws. Hochul was joined by legislative leaders, the mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown, and Attorney General Tish James, who says she will vigorously fight any challenges to the measures. We will be ready to defend these laws against any challenges because the Second Amendment to all those who think, all those drunk with power who think that they will challenge these laws, let me tell you that the Second Amendment is not absolute. A California law that raised the age to purchase a semi-automatic rifle to age 21 was struck down by a federal court. Hochul says while New York responded to the mass shootings, national action is needed. She says decades ago, car accidents were the number one killer of children in America, and the nation responded with seatbelt laws and other safety measures that were unpopular at the time. Yeah, we took away the freedom to ride in a car without a seatbelt. It was a very big deal when it happened. But people adapt, they got used to it, and guess what? We saved the lives of thousands of children. So it was clearly worth it. Now, more children die from gun violence than from any other cause, and she says the nation has to act. The governor says it is a moment of reckoning for the country, and history will judge our actions. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Meanwhile, schools are working hard to shore up safety policies in the wake of the recent shooting in Uvalde, Texas. But how can students be ready without living in fear? More now from WRVO's Jessica Kane. 
Jacqueline Schildkraut is an associate professor of criminal justice at SUNY Oswego, whose research focuses on mass shootings. Over the past four years, she has worked with schools on safety plans and says it's important to find a balance. We're not using sensationalized techniques. We are using trauma-informed practices, and we've built a collaboration, and it's had immeasurable benefits. Um, so you don't have to scare kids to prepare them. Schildkraut says despite recent high-profile shootings, she believes schools are still very safe in general. She says most schools are already doing quite a bit to minimize risks, including single-point entries, visitor management systems, security personnel, and cameras. But Schildkraut, who grew up in the Parkland, Florida area, says it's crucial to be prepared. We don't want everybody to live in fear, but the minute that you say it could never happen here is the minute that you become complacent. One proposal that Schildkraut says would probably not help schools become safer would be arming teachers. She says research shows even trained law enforcement officers find it challenging to hit someone firing at them in an active shooter situation. Their hit rates are incredibly low and civilians would receive even less training and time on a range that officers would. So I think in terms of just what we know about the, the potential for it to be an effective solution, um, the information is just not there to support that. But Schildkraut says lockdown drills are an important piece of the puzzle. She says while it's important to minimize trauma to students when it comes to the drills, parents should stress to their children that they should take them seriously. It's very important that we keep in mind what the goal of the drill is, which is to build muscle memory. We're simply practicing a set of steps that we want individuals to, you know, be able to use if for any reason their cognitive functioning is impaired by stress. Schildkraut recommends reminding students that lockdown drills are used to prepare for any danger inside the building, not just shootings, and encouraging an open dialogue for any concerns kids might have. In Syracuse, I'm Jessica Kane. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, you had a conversation with New York Governor Kathy Hochul this week, who said she's proud of her push to pass new gun control laws in the state, for which she signed 10 bills into law on Monday. This includes the fact that she said she's evolved from earlier positions where she was supported by the NRA in a run for Congress from Western New York, a more conservative district, to where she is now, where New York is leading in terms of gun control after the terrible mass shooting in Buffalo, then Uvalde, and many others before and since. But her proposals, now signed into law, as we heard from our Karen DeWitt, will have impact in New York, but she said Washington really is the problem. Well, not only Washington. Look, we have a system of 50 states. Everybody has different rules. We do know that we can control guns to some extent in a place like New York. We also know that they can get carried over the state lines very easily. You know, I was impressed with Kathy Hochul. In the beginning, I wasn't so sure. But now I'm watching her evolution. She really understands that these guns are terror for all of us. And she is really quite a governor right now. 
and she's doing a good job. And I'm very pleased that she keeps choosing to talk to us, David, because I think she knows the power of radio and public radio and where we are, and she's been good about showing up. And straightforward. When you asked her about, for example, redistricting, she said it's definitely flawed. It was chaos this year, and we need to fix this. She said it. She's right. You watch the sort of machinations of politicians as they try to stay in office, and they do it by drawing the lines, picking their own voters, doing all of those things which we know is really awful in terms of the creation and the maintenance of a democracy. And we are trying, but there will always be those who say, I'd rather be elected than do what's right. Yeah, she's also moved with the coming potential decision on abortion from the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade to shore up the ability to have an abortion in New York. And you talk with her about the women that come from other states, which has happened for years, but in this new effort and new funding that she's put in millions of dollars for health care services in this area is not only for New York women to have these services, but for those coming from these other states. She was very careful in our conversation to say that New York would welcome women from other states. But she said also, David, if I remember correctly, that New Yorkers would not have to do all of the pain for this. We would welcome women who sought abortion, but we would not be the paymaster for the rest of the country. Look, we've got a lot of states in which women are treated very, very badly. And we see it in terms of their rules on abortion and women's right to control their own body. It's just reprehensible in every way. People talk a good game about, you know, women and why women are so important, how they honor their women, and then they turn around and they do this awful thing in which they make it impossible for women to control their own bodies. Something that the governor dropped in your conversation, and it hit me because for years you and I talked about something called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, and that was trying to level the educational funding playing field. You know, yeah. The money comes out of the property taxes, so if you have a low property tax base, often minority communities, you don't get as much money. So they right. did that. The foundation aid was filled. That was a huge issue for so many years in New York, and it caught my attention when she mentioned we've done that. Well, that's right. She did say that to us on the radio, and she's proud of it. And, you know, a lot of people talked a good game, but they didn't do it. They didn't make it equal so that a poor kid in a poor district was, well, screwed educationally. They didn't have the right money for teachers and aides and everything else. So every time we make a move towards equalizing all of that, New Yorkers are realizing the potential for democracy, and that's what they're doing. Kathy Hochul is to be commended for her attitude and what she's trying to do to equalize things. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As the nation debates what action is needed after the latest wave of mass shootings, a new poll from Quinnipiac University finds a large majority of Americans would like to raise the age to buy a firearm to 21. That's one of the findings of the poll, which also surveyed attitudes about President Biden, Congress, and the economy. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus sat down with Quinnipiac's Tim Malloy for analysis. Hi, Ian. Thanks for calling. Love to talk to you. So guns, uh, the big issue in the country right now and in this poll, right? Yeah, and, and as you said, the, the headline on this is that uh, we've never d- done this question. The answer is three to one. People want to raise the minimum age for buying any gun, not just assault weapons, any gun to 21, which I think is significant. Uh, what inspired asking that question this time? Well, you're a news guy. I mean, just take a look at Buffalo and Uvalde. And, and, we, and of course, we are based uh, in, the, in the state where Sandy Hook is, and, and we've been on this Call, asking this question for many, many years in a row, 10. So when we saw this, we said it's time to do it again right away. Now, one thing that sticks out here is that although three quarters of Americans said, yes, let's raise the age to buy a gun to 21, far fewer in the survey want stricter gun laws, right? Yeah, it's down to uh, 57% want stricter gun laws. Ho- however, that's higher than it was a year ago when it was 45%. They wanted uh, stricter gun laws, so there was there has been movement in that regard. Uh, background checks always been in the '90s. Uh, it's a little perplexing as to how many people would want a background check but would want to move on other things. But it's it's 92 percent right now. But yeah, actually, the, it is a fairly significant number that wants stricter gun laws compared to a, a number a year ago. And is it fair to guess that the reason for that jump is the just the horrific violence we've been seeing in this latest rash of mass shootings? Uh, you know, it's been trending this way anyway, but uh, you got to figure. Just put on the television or pick up a newspaper or sit down at a kitchen table with your family and friends and talk about this stuff, and you're, you're, you're going to be moved by it. Yeah, I will tell you one thing. You're probably going to ask me this anyway, but the, what we did find, which was surprising, was that Half of Americans, only half, support the nationwide ban on assault weapons. That's the lowest level of support in that way since 2013. Where that came from, I don't know. But once again, it's half and half on banning assault weapons, whereas before it was a little more leaning the other way. Given the backdrop of the Senate negotiations, which you know are changing by the day, uh, whether a deal can get done on any sort of new gun reforms, your poll sort of shows why uh, this is happening in fits and starts. I mean, there's some mixed messages here in terms of what uh, the people would actually support. Again, the, the, the gun lobbyists and the NRA not taking a stand one way or the other here, we don't do that, have stoked a very powerful message for many, many decades. It's if you take one gun away, you could take all of them away. And that's probably why we believe the assault weapon thing doesn't move much. Um, Maybe in their minds they think this is unconscionable, unconscionable that we this kind of horror can be coming to classrooms and grocery stores in Buffalo. But in the end, there may be fear of a, a tidal wave of taking people's guns away. That's the only thing I can come up with. Well, let's move on now and talk about some political figures. Uh, President Biden has not been doing well in the Quinnipiac poll, uh, and that trend is continuing, right? Yeah, he has a negative 33.55. In other words, his, his approval rating is 33 percent, 55 down. I mean, anything below 40 is troubling, and uh, this has been a, a small spiral in the last few months after a fairly good start. He was in the 40s at one point, now he's down at 33, and any number of reasons. 
how does that compare with where he's been uh, in his public life? This is the lowest he's ever been. It's, it's it, plus or minus when you're looking at the uh, margin of error. This this ties lowest ever. So this is a very bad number for the president. Um, and he's, he's not pulling well on Russia, gun violence, the economy. Uh, inflation is really what's hurting him right now is, is pretty much because the numbers of this number one concern of Americans right now is inflation, not guns, not immigration, inflation. I remember speaking to you during the Trump years, and you had made the point that any time a president goes under 40, that's a warning sign. So would you say the same is true here for uh, Biden and the Democrats ahead of the midterms? I'm sure the red lights are flashing everywhere in the White House right now. This is a, a bad number. As the It's not that the midterms are sneaking up. They're screaming up soon. So, yeah, this is, a, this is going to be a tough, uh, tough go at midterm time. Now, the poll also asked registered voters about which party they would like to see running the House of Representatives uh, in the next Congress. What did you find out? Uh, pretty much, a, pretty much a, a tie uh, as far as approval rating. Uh, but as far as uh, the Republican Party would win out as far as taking control on the minds, the hopes of American voters. However, we asked, when you look into the approval, they're about even. Yeah, it, 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 they're not popular. It's never a good number when you say, what do you think of your lawmakers? And the same holds down. In other words, uh, the voters are not thrilled with either party. It's it's Republicans over Democrats as far as who would you want to have represent you by a small margin. As far as their approval ratings, they both stink and they're about even. And what are some of the top issues voters are uh, thinking about as we do head into this fall election season? It's inflation first, far and away. Uh, uh, guns, immigration, uh, way down the line now is COVID, Ukraine. They've not vanished, but they have very low numbers compared to these. I mean, inflation is the elephant in the room. Uh, anything else from this poll that stands out to you that I didn't ask about? I'll tell you, what's one of the things that I found interesting, I don't even have kids, but four in 10 of Americans, which four in 10, 40% of Americans we talked to, worry that they will be a victim of a mass killer. And 57% of Americans who have children in schools, 57% of them said they worried that the school where their kid goes to school could get attacked. If that doesn't tell you about the fear that looms right now because of the, the madness that's gone on in the last year or so, I don't know what does. Well, heavy stuff from Tim Malloy from the Quinnipiac University poll. Uh, thanks, as always, for taking the time to break it down with us, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks, Ian. You do great work. That's the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus, speaking with Tim Malloy from the Quinnipiac University Poll. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Most people in New York City might be a little skeptical about eating something they found on the street, if it's not from a food cart. But one New Yorker has made it his life's work to convince his neighbors that nature's bounty is accessible even in the heart of the city. WSHU's Davis Donovan, reporting for the Legislative Gazette, went on a foraging tour in Queens with, quote, wild man Steve Brill. I'd like everyone's attention. (laughs) So uh, this is a huge park. There are sunny areas we're going to start with and cultivated areas, and then there are woods. 
Wild man Steve Brill has gathered a tour group of about 20 people at Forest Park, and soon they set off into the park, headed for the woods. Steve scans the trees and the shrubs. Every now and then, he stops to explain how a nut, berry, or leafy weed that grows in the park is actually edible and even tasty. This is the common blue violet. has a heart-shaped leaf, a violet flower with five petals and a little beard in the center. So everyone get a flower so you can look at that. The leaves and the flowers are edible and quite good. My favorite plant because my daughter's name is Violet. Someone brings Steve a small blue mushroom she found in a mulchy pile of needles at the base of a pine tree. His eyes go wide. Oh, a bluet. Everyone come over here. This is a blue mushroom called a bluet, Clotasibi nuda. Grows on the ground, uh, usually under pine debris. It has a blue cap. Uh, where was it and is there more? Steve and his tour goers poke around among the pine needles, but they can't find any more bluets. This is Eric Sarpong's third time on the tour. My friend actually recommended it to me. He does a lot of foraging and growing his own food, so he recommended me Steve Brill, so I came out here to try it out, and I had an excellent time. <laughs> Steve Brill planted the seed in my head, like I can go out to my local park and forest and get food, you know, so that, that was pretty amazing. Eric now does his own foraging back home in New Jersey, and he finds some cool stuff. I found hand of the woods mushrooms once. That was really big for me because it was really cool to find. A lot of burdock I find, goutweed I find a lot of that. Eric says next he'll try learning to make some recipes with his foraged mushrooms. Wild man Steve Brill first became fascinated with foraging after he saw a group of Greek women collecting grape leaves right here in Forest Park. His nickname, Wild Man, did not evolve from his love of foraging, though. It was his love of jazz, in reference to the jazz standard Wild Man Blues. His apartment in New Rochelle has a wall full of local newspaper clippings, starting with his first notoriety. Here's articles of how I got arrested, teeth off the grass, page two of the New York Daily News, page one of the Chicago Sun-Times, Daisy's not on on the diet. That headline refers to the incident that put Steve Brill on the map when he ran afoul of the city parks department. And they were infuriated that I came into their park and was showing people about plants and picking weeds. Steve says they spied on him with binoculars and actually chased him through parks. They finally mounted an undercover operation in 1986. Two rangers posing as a husband and wife signed up for a tour in Central Park. The man paid me with mark bills, and they had surveillance cameras. Every time I'd hold up a specimen, they'd take a picture, only I was the specimen. At the end of the tour, I ate one leaf of a dandelion, and the male ranger ducked behind a tree. All right, there he is on 81st Street. Go get him. Every park ranger uh, in New York City popped out from behind the bushes. They surrounded me in case I was going to climb up a tree, put me in handcuffs lest I bop them on the head with a dandelion. The charge was criminal mischief for removing vegetation from the park. 
The arrest made Steve a local celebrity, and briefly a worldwide one. Everyone from MTV to the BBC covered the story. Steve has keepsakes on his wall from his brief jail stint. Somewhere up here are my fingerprints. Here they are. They let you keep those? Yeah, yeah. I still can't get the mug shots, but it's only been like 36 years. Steve's relationship with the city has changed a lot in those 36 years. After the arrest, Mayor Ed Koch saw the publicity and decided to hire Steve to do official city-sponsored tours instead. He worked for the city for the rest of the Koch administration, then picked up where he left off with his own tours. No one tries to throw him in jail for eating flowers anymore. I've had people that started when they were kids and have become environmental leaders, founding environmental organizations, are doing ecotourism around the world and their first glimpse of nature, because you don't get a lot of this in schools was coming on foraging tours of me when they were kids. Steve says New York City's parks are actually some of the best places in the world to forage. For one thing, New York's bridges and tunnels do a great job at keeping out larger wildlife that plague other parks. So there are no deer in the city parks, and they plant things from around the world. You're not going to find ginkgos on the Appalachian Trail, for example. There's also more habitat variety. And Steve has expanded his range outside the city limits. Now he teaches foraging classes in parks in Connecticut, New Jersey, upstate New York, and Long Island. But he says he hasn't entirely escaped his outlaw past. And he still has to watch his back for local officials in suburbs who don't understand the power of foraging. The officials will let you take a log covered with mushrooms and burn it in a campfire which kills the fungus in the log that's producing the mushrooms. But if you pick the mushrooms, they want to lock you up. So uh, I'm sure some of them will follow me to the grave and come after me in the next, in the next world. Wildman Steve Brill has published a few books, including a handbook on foraging in New York through Falcon Guides, a widely respected outdoor guide publisher. He also did a vegan cookbook full of recipes you can make with foraged food. Okay. I tried a little bit of his hummus dip, and it's delicious. That's WSHU's Davis Donovan reporting for the Legislative Gazette. that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2223. Or just listen at wamc.org. Or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.